Good evening. President Biden marks 100 years since the Tulsa race massacre. Is the United States exceptional? We talked to retired Army major and West Point instructor and $50 billion for worldwide vaccination. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. An emotional President Joe Biden marked the 100th anniversary of the massacre that destroyed a thriving black community in Tulsa, declaring today that he had come to fill the silence about one of the nation's darkest and long suppressed moments of racial violence. The president, joined by top black advisors, met privately with three surviving members of the Greenwood community who lived through the violence. The White House says Viola, Mother Fletcher, Hughes, Uncle Red Van Ellis and Leslie, Mother Randall Benningfield all between the ages of 100 and 107, met with the president before his speech, where he said the words we're about to hear. 75 black men, including black veterans, arrived to stand guard. Words were exchanged, then a scuffle, then a shots fired. Hell was unleashed. Literal hell was unleashed. Through the night and in the morning, the mob terrorized Greenwood, torches and guns, shooting at will. A mob tied a black man by the waist to the back of their truck with his head banging along the pavement as they drove off. A murdered black family draped over the fence of their home outside. An elderly couple knelt by their bed praying to God with their heart and their soul when they were shot in the back of their heads. Private planes, private planes dropping explosives. The first and only domestic aerial assault of its kind on an American city here in Tulsa. Eight of Greenwood's nearly two dozen churches burned like Mount Zion across the street at Vernon AME. Mother Randall said it was like a war. Mother Fletcher says, all these years later, she still sees black bodies around. The Greenwood newspaper publisher, A.J. Smitherton, excuse me, Smitherman, penned a poem of what he heard and felt that night. And here's the poem. He said, kill them, burn them, set the pace, teach them how to keep their place. Reign of murder, theft and plunder was the order of the night. That's what he remembers in the poem that he wrote. 100 years ago, at this hour, on this first day of June, smoke darkened the Tulsa sky, rising from 35 blocks of Greenwood that were left in ash and ember, raised in rubble. What happened in Greenwood was an act of hate and domestic terrorism with the through line that exists today still. Just close your eyes. Remember what you saw in Charlottesville four years ago on television. Neo-Nazis, white supremacists, the KKK, coming out of those fields at night, Virginia, with lighted torches, the veins bulging on their as they were screaming. Remember, just close your eyes and picture what it was. Well... Mother Fletcher said when she saw the insurrection at the Capitol on January the 9th, it broke her heart. A mob of violent white extremists, thugs, said reminded her of what 
happened here in Greenwood 100 years ago. Look around at the various hate crimes against Asian Americans and Jewish Americans. Hate that never goes away. Hate only hides. Terrorism from white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland today. Dr. John Hope Franklin, one of America's greatest historians, Tulsa's proud son, whose father was a Greenwood survivor, said, and I quote, whatever you do, it must be done in the spirit of goodwill and mutual respect and even love. How else can we overcome the past and be worthy of our forebears and face the future with confidence and with hope? On this sacred and solemn day, may we find that distinctly Greenwood spirit that defines the American spirit. I've never been more optimistic about the future than I am today. History teaches us not to hope on this side of the grave, but then, once in a lifetime, that longed-for tidal wave of justice rises up and hope and history rhyme. Let's make it rhyme. Yes, Thank you. Biden's commemoration of the deaths of hundreds of black people killed by a white mob a century ago came amid the current national reckoning on racial justice. After Biden left, there was a spontaneous singing by some audience members of a famous civil rights march song, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around. The events on Tuesday stood in stark contrast to then-President Donald Trump's trip to Tulsa last June, which was greeted by protests, or the former president's decision one year ago to clear Lafayette Square near the White House of demonstrators who gathered to protest the death of George Floyd, a black man under the knee of a white Minneapolis police officer. Today... We're now going to move on to another story, though, about the United States, maybe another way of looking at the United States, a country that since its earliest days, really even as a colony before it was a country, has expressed sort of a general popular idea that we are somehow exceptional, better than the rest for our religion, for our embrace of freedom, for the beauty of our lands. Today is the official release date of a new book, A True History of the United States, Indigenous Genocide, Racialized Slavery, Hypercapitalism, Militarist Imperialism, and Other Overlooked Aspects of American Exceptionalism. The book is written by a former Army officer and West Point history professor, Danny Shurgeon. He says America's view of itself would be just narcissistic if it weren't for the size of the U.S. military. American exceptionalism, the notion that we have a special mission to be a city on a hill, to be an indispensable nation, to be the last best hope. These are all words that are regularly used in mainstream political discourse even today, but throughout our history. Uh, that in some ways has been the civic religion of the United States, and it is somewhat unique. Most countries don't necessarily have that sense of not only uh, a messianic mission for the world, uh, but such a high view of themselves. And I think that it can border on, um, obviously, the narcissistic, but when the exceptionalist nation is also the more powerful nation, the militarily powerful nation, the economically powerful nation, it can then very easily turn into a militancy, neo-imperialism, and just the general militant chauvinism. Tell us about more about your book. What was the source of the title? What was the influence to write the book, The Impetus? It's based largely, or at least generally, on the 38 
lectures or classes that I taught in History 101 to freshmen at West Point. Not verbatim, but the subject, the analysis, the conclusions are just about the exact thing that I was teaching to West Point cadets. And it's in line with the general scholarly, say, consensus, but probably majority view of these issues. But I think that'll surprise a lot of folks. Bob Shear, who was a legendary journalist through the years and activist, used to run Truth Dig. He said, why don't you turn those in essays for Truth Dig? I did. And then they got some attention and they asked me to kind of turn it into book form. The subtitle, Indigenous Genocide, Racialized Slavery, hyper-capitalism, militarist imperialism, or another word for that would just be empire, is that in my introduction, the way I used to sort of describe this to cadets, I would say that for better or worse, good and bad in its outcomes, or there are aspects of America that are positive, this country is kind of weighed down, even today, by the what I call the four original sins, which is the, the wiping out of Native peoples, or the attempt to do so, the racialized slavery that's still with us, the hyper-capitalism that has really been a class warfare from the top to the bottom, and then the fact that the most controversial thing I'll argue in terms of historians is that America has always been an empire of one form or another, and that it didn't just become one in 1898 or at the Vietnam War or after 9-11. Where is this all heading for America under the Biden administration looking forward? And where can we get your book? You know, he's got choices like every president does. Presidents have a lot of power, especially in foreign policy. On domestic policy, there's, you know, there's a lot of positive talk, right? There's a lot of sort of progressive talk. And I hope there's some, also some follow through. I think there's been some and hopefully there's more. What would be interesting is to see how many long term changes a Biden administration wants to do is able to push through, because Congress has a say on domestic policy, but on foreign policy, is there truly a desire to reframe America's role in the world away from sort of a hegemony and a neo-imperialism and an endless warfare to something more circumscribed and then decent in its outcomes? There's a lot of questions, more questions than answers to that so far, but stay tuned, and we're not going to understand what could be unless we sort of understand the realities or at least the debates about our past. And then the book... You can get the print version through Steerforth Press. And then the audio book, which I read, believe it or not, is through Penguin Random House, and you can find it there. Former Army officer and West Point history professor, Danny Surgeon. And of course, yesterday, as we know, was Memorial Day, where Americans honor their dead, if not the dead of countries, where America has fought its many wars. And writer Dan Kovalik has spent the past few weeks exploring the Middle East nation of Syria. He returned this week and spoke with WBAI about what he saw in a country recovering after 10 years of bloody civil war and foreign intervention. The war against terror, and that's really what it was, against multiple terrorist groups that were backed by all sorts of countries, the U.S., Israel, Turkey, the UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. That war has largely been won with the help of Russia. It was my impression from people that they are relieved that war is over and want to move on. If the war is over, how come the United States is still there? That's a good question. They were never asked to be there in the first place. Donald Trump, when he was, he was president, was very honest about the fact that we are still there for oil. You might recall that he said that, that he was going to pull out, and then he said, well, I think we'll just stay for the oil. And in fact, he gave Syria is being heavily sanctioned, but he gave a sanctions waiver to a U.S. oil company to drill oil. Now, Biden has, has temporarily suspended that license, and he may permanently suspend it, so we'll see what happens. But that's a big reason we're there is for oil. But also, Joe Biden, you know, for a long time, 
including his vice president, was very clear that he wanted to partition Syria, that they didn't want a unified Syria. And so occupying Syria in this way, that continues, it guarantees a partition country. And why? They do not want an independent Syrian, unified Syrian state. Is the U.S. there because Russia's there? I mean, if Russia's going to be there, we have to be there. Is it a proxy war type of thing? I don't believe it was a civil war, essentially. I mean, there were aspects of certainly there were Syrians fighting on the other side. Certainly there was an aspect to it that was a civil war. In its essence, it was always a world war, really, because you know, I just named a number, you know, a number of different countries that have been involved there. Look, we know from Seymour Hersh, he wrote something in 2007 way back in 2007 called the redirection in the New Yorker saying that the U.S. was already arming jihadist groups in Syria as early as 2005. This was planned out way in advance. It's not that the U.S. is there because Russia is there. Russia's there because the U.S. was there way before supporting terrorist organizations that the U.S. has designated as terrorists, that the U.S. recognizes as terrorists, and it did so to at first try to topple the Assad government, and then when it couldn't do that, the goal was to partition the country and to destroy Syria's economy, which it has accomplished. What about uh, the allegations that Assad's forces were responsible for massive human rights violations in the course of fighting this war? Did they commit human rights abuses during the war? I'm certain. It was a brutal war. You had jihadist groups that took over whole cities and imposed Sharia law, chopped people's heads off, raped women, destroyed historic antiquities. To get those people out of the city was not an easy thing to do. They had to go house to house. They mortared houses. Sure, people died in the process. Civilians died in the process. And that's a terrible thing. It's my impression that the Syrian government did what it could to regain those cities in ways that at least created suffering for the for the civilians, though it did cause suffering, inevitably. Can I just remind people that we, you know, the United States had a civil war, and that only lasted for what four years. Lincoln and Sherman burned down huge parts of the South as they went down and liberated the South. Civil wars are not pretty, and especially civil wars that are frankly secondary to a war against multiple terrorist groups being funded by multiple countries outside. What about the Kurds in the north, some of whom feel they have a right to a nation state and aren't really ISIS at all? They're not ISIS. They have a right certainly to peace and to their own development. Do they have a right to their own territory? I'm not sure. Are there people in the U.S. who could claim they have the right to their own territory? The fact is, right now, under international law, they are part of Syria. And I think what you're going to find is ultimately the Kurds are going to want to be part of Syria because they sure as heck don't want to be part of Turkey, which has been much harder on the Kurds than Syria has. Some sites that you saw there. Saw beautiful churches there. It's a Christian town. Uh, When the terrorists took over, the Free Syrian Army backed by the U.S., they raided the church. They destroyed and stole icons from the church. They killed nuns. That town is now peaceful and is happy and is rebuilding. And that was an amazing sight. Frankly, it makes me redouble my feelings that the intervention by the U.S. was wrong and had nothing to do with human rights. That's Dan Kovalik. He's the author who just returned from the Middle East nation of Syria. As of 2015, 3.8 million people have been made refugees in Syria. 
So obviously it's more than that, but we just don't have all the numbers. Over 380,000 people were killed since the war started nine years ago. The death toll comprises civilians, government soldiers, militia members, and foreign troops. And the World Health Organization hosted a joint briefing with the heads of the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, and World Trade Organization on the global coronavirus response. The leaders announced the $50 billion pledge to invest in the fight against COVID-19, particularly making vaccinations and treatments more accessible and equitable worldwide. Dr. Tedros Adnam is Director General of the World Health Organization. I join leaders from the International Monetary Fund, the World Trade Organization, and the World Bank Group in publishing an op-ed in many newspapers around the world that calls for a new commitment with a 50 billion US dollars rapid investment to fund the equitable distribution of vaccines and other crucial health tools. We particularly welcome that in that in the proposal the majority of the new funding would be made available quickly through grants, including to fill the Act Accelerates funding, funding gap. This would help us dramatically scale up the production of diagnostics, treatments, oxygen, medical equipment, and vaccines for equitable distribution. Furthermore, this new roadmap reflects the need to enhance countries' readiness and capacity systems to utilize these tools rapidly, safely, and effectively. It should be a real game changer. And as G7 finance leaders meet in the UK this week, followed by heads of state summit next week, there are multiple opportunities for leaders to step up. And that's uh, Dr. Tedros Adnam. He's director general of the World Health Organization. But WHO also warns the fight against COVID is far from over. Dr. Mike Ryan, who heads emergency response for the organization, says South America is emerging as the new hotspot. Test positivity remains remarkably high in some countries. In Paraguay, it's nearly 37 percent in Argentina, 33 percent in Colombia, 30 percent in Ecuador, 29 percent. And very few countries actually in South America have rates uh, below below 10 percent. So again, the uh, disease transmission is intense. Uh, community transmission is widespread. The healthcare system remains under pressure, and that's been reflected in in mortality rates. So I think it is very, very important. And the question was asked, the impact, the point of impact of this pandemic shifts. And we're moving from looking at the tragedy of India and Nepal and that point of impact shifts. And it's really been driven by the underlying incidents and the basic capacity of the health system to cope. And in the absence of high levels of vaccination, they're the two factors that are going to drive the impact of this disease in the coming months. How intense is transmission? How well is your system able to cope with that transmission? Vaccine can break that cycle because right now intense transmission in every country in the world has led to intense pressure on the health system and increasing case fatality rates. Vaccination can break that cycle. Continuing to implement public health and social measures can break that cycle. But that cycle will continue. And we will, unfortunately at the moment, I think, if any of you have children, you watch your kids playing football and they all chase around the field after a football uh, because we all chase the thing that's moving. And the moving target right now is the point of impact of this pandemic. And we have to take a step back and realize we have to break that cycle. We simply have to break that cycle. So countries who've done well up to now, countries who've sustained their effort over many months, kept mortality and incidence rates low, 
are struggling to do that a year and a half into the pandemic, struggling to ask their populations to even go further. Very, very hard while they watch other countries being vaccinated left, right and centre. South America was really in a difficult situation only a couple of months ago. And that situation, again, is starting to turn in the wrong direction. And we need to take account of that. And that's Dr. Mike Ryan. He heads emergency response for the World Health Organization. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York City saw the lowest rate of people testing positive for COVID-19 since it began keeping track of the city's positivity rate. The numbers were announced by Mayor de Blasio today. Uh, new reported cases on a seven-day average, 271. Again, we're seeing really steady progress. Vaccinations making all the difference. And... Finally, I'm going to repeat it. Percentage of people testing positive citywide for COVID-19 on a seven-day rolling average, the lowest since we began keeping these figures, the lowest since the testing went in place and we were able to measure our city, the lowest since the beginning of the pandemic, 0.83% and going down. Let's keep it that way. Health experts have tied the improving metrics to the city's vaccination effort. About 43.2% of the city is fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, the NYPD is enforcing a new 10 p.m. curfew at Washington Square Park following complaints of disorder and late night revelry at the lower Manhattan public space. Police officials confirmed the change this weekend, which they say was made in coordination with the New York City Parks Department. The curfew, which comes two hours earlier than the current closing time, will be implemented by a special detail of NYPD officers on Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights on an ongoing basis. The mayor was asked about the new curfew today. So wanted to just basically ask why the NYPD is uh, going with that response at this point for Washington Square Park. Yeah, you know, Steve, I want to be clear. First of all, a park I know well and love deeply. I went to NYU, so I spent four years of my life spending a lot of time in Washington Square Park. I think it's one of the jewels of this city. Um, look, it's also a residential neighborhood. If you get late at night uh, and there's a whole lot of activity, uh, that, that's something we do need to create some balance on. Um, we want to do that with the lightest touch possible. So we'll continue to refine the approach. Yeah, it's New York City. And yeah, we want people to enjoy the summer of New York City. No question. But there still has to be some balance in the equation. We have to respect neighborhood residents and figure out the right way to strike that balance. So we'll be working on that in the days ahead. Uh, to make sure that approach makes sense as we go into the summer. Mayor de Blasio, in an emailed statement, the Washington Square Park Conservancy, a nonprofit that helps with park programming, say they supported the closure. After hours, usage in Washington Square Park has impinged on people's ability to safely use and enjoy the park during the hours it's open. That's according to the statement from the Conservancy. We're going to be having more on the story later in the week because it is far, far from a unanimous decision to have a curfew in the park. And finally, the Biden administration on Tuesday suspended oil and gas leases in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, reversing a drilling program approved by the Trump administration and reviving a political fight over a remote region that is home to polar bears and other wildlife and a rich reserve of oil. The remote 19.6 million acre refuge is home to polar bears, caribou, snowy owls and other wildlife, including migrating birds from six continents. Republicans and the oil industry have been long trying to open up the oil-rich refuge, which is considered sacred by the indigenous people in the region, for drilling. Democrats, environmental groups, and some Alaska tribes have been trying to block it. And- 
And that's some of the news for Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.